Hello and uh, welcome to another episode of the Trademark Podcast. Um, I'm joined as always by Dr. Stefan Anulang from Trademark and uh, we're delighted that Comrade Professor John Barry has decided to join us again. Uh, we had John on the last time talking about the coronavirus crisis, um, the economics or implications of it and what sort of economy and society might emerge out the, out the other end. Um, but we didn't really scratch the surface of, of what we wanted to talk about and uh, we're delighted that John has come back on to, to sort of get into the weeds uh, of, of some of those uh, issues. Uh, I thought we'd start, lads, with uh, a sort of balance sheet of where we're at. Um, so, John, just to begin with you, where, where are we at with the, in terms of the public impact, or public health impact, sorry, of the, of the crisis? Um, how do you see it panning out? Well, I think uh, we really begin to see the disastrous policy that was followed by particularly the, uh, the UK government. And, and I think the, the work Trademark has been doing, particularly online, of you know, the hashtag herd immunity is murder is absolutely correct. And now we see how quickly the Tory government is turfing people back out into the streets and getting them to go back to work in a very confused set of, you know, guidance from uh, Bojo. Um, so clearly the patience has snapped, if you like, of the, 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 uh, those with the money strings pulling the Tories um, and demanding that we crank up the economy again, which is going to put people at risk. Uh, not only that, it's also about children because they're talking about opening up the schools and so on. So for me, this is a, you know, a clear example of the economy coming before public health. Um, the only, I suppose, silver lining is the fact that Rishi Sunak has committed to continuing the, the furloughed payments to till October, which is, uh, you know, which is something to be at least welcome. But you know, my fear is that obviously we're going to have a second spike uh, as a result of this. Uh, there's no testing going on to the extent that um, as an academic, you know, I'm not a statistician, but I do understand how, you know, empirical data is generated. I have very little confidence in, you know, the, the, the R rate, you know, the reinfection rate, because we're not community testing uh, either in Northern Ireland or the UK. So I, I don't think we really have a sense of the reproduction rate of, of, of this virus. Um, and the reality is that in the, in the case of the Tories, you know, who should be never trust, uh, it's a, a very simple abuse of statistics. You know that old adage, lads, you know, she uses statistics like a drunk uses a lamppost for support rather than illumination. And I think this is exactly what's going on with, with the Tories. So it's very it's deeply, deeply worrying. And I'll just finish by saying, again, as an academic, I, I do worry about those epidemiologists and chief scientific and medical officers you know, are they being compromised? Are they being, uh, uh, you know, politically uh, led on not to do their job? Because what's, what we do see is other epidemiologists coming out and criticizing what the, uh, the scientists and the experts advising the government is doing. And I, I tend to trust those who are outside the government system, um, you know, offering their criticism. So I, I just don't believe that the figures were being given in those daily briefings. Yeah, and I, I suppose we've seen in countries that have begun to reopen, um, like so with the Wuhan province of China and Germany, 
uh, those places that have reopened prematurely have yeah. seen uh, another spike in, in cases and have been forced to close things down again. Stevie, the, the North's record has been comparatively better than, than the UK as a whole, although there are still concerns around, as, as John said, the lack of contact tracing and testing and the course protection for workers. Um, I get the sense that, that executive ministers, the Northern Executive is coming under pressure from business, the business lobby to reopen things again. Uh, at the moment, their position is, is slightly better in the British government, but could you see a, a, a situation where, where they reopen prematurely? I don't doubt that um, everybody on these islands is going to open too early. I don't doubt that the pressure is massive from IVEC and CBI and business communities. Um, I read the other day, someone had tweeted, how can you have a second wave when you haven't come out of the first? And that's the situation. I mean, before, before the peak even drops to um, a level where, you know, in terms of the R8 has dropped below one, you know, it's safer, we're pushing people back out to work again. And I think the North will follow Britain and the South very soon after. The South's already talking about um, opening pubs in August and stuff like that and public engagement. So, um, I'm, I mean... <laughs> A virus spreads when people come into contact. That's it. it seems to be as simple as that. So if people are coming into greater contact, then the virus is going to spread again. I mean, the ONS, Office of National Statistics, have said that there's 50,000 excess deaths so far. So it's about 20,000 above where the government is. They're suggesting probably 60,000. So you're going to see 100,000 before the end of the summer. And that's a fucking huge number of dead people. When you yeah. see somewhere like Greece, Greece, like, it's been hammered with austerity for the last 10 years. whose so public infrastructure has been devastated and sold off. They've only had, I think, 150, 160 deaths. There's, I mean, and, and the fact that the British government are getting such a, an easy time of it by their own press is, is unbelievable. I mean, there's clearly an agreement between the national press, isn't there? Even the BBC and, and the Tory party to, to give them a, an easy time of it. You know, it's, um, it's just the playing out of the herd immunity policy. It's as simple as that. John was right. Herd immunity is murder. They, they dumped old people and they've forgotten about them. They're a sacrificial lamb. They're gone. Um, it, it seems now as if they were dumping them back into care homes without testing them, knowing they were had COVID just to spread it. Um, right. well, and it's just well, a plan, some... that neoliberal approach, isn't it? I mean, the best approach to the best way to control a pandemic apparently is to do nothing. That seems to be it. Right. The, I've been fascinated. I was talking to John earlier, so I just say is what the, the debate for the last five days has been about fucking golf courses, nannies, and cleaners. I mean, is that if that doesn't tell you the class nature of this pandemic, I don't know what does. Uh, or add in there, you know, the desire to get the garden centres back open as well, and you have the whole panoply of middle-class bourgeois pursuits. But as somebody said on Twitter the other day, they said, I'm not saying Boris Johnson's plan is bad, but even, even the DUP aren't backing it. <laughs> that tells us something. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I suppose, yeah, as I, th I think I said before, it's, we're fortunate that there's a healthy mistrust of the Tories here, um, and that's, a, that's applying pressure on the likes of the DUP. Um, we talked briefly about the economy. Um, even in the sort of best best case scenario, where the lockdown lockdown does last, the sensible option is taken, and the lockdown is is continued beyond you know into the summer and possibly into September before it begins to be eased um, or before we begin to get a handle on it. But even in that best case scenario, we're still talking about significant economic impacts. Um, Stevie, what's the likely impact as, as things stand? It's going to be um, increased debt, greater precarity. There's going to be greater instability economically. There's going to be greater inequality. If one thing that the, that the crisis has revealed is that we live in a rental economy. Most of the government spending 
And we were happy there. I mean, I'm on furlough. I'm happy that the government's paying my wages, but most of that weight, most of the government spending is going to me, to a mortgage, to me, to a loan, or it's going through to private renters, to landlords. I read an open democracy argument, uh, article this week. They said about 45% of all government spending is going back into the capitalist rentier economy. So there's one particular class that are continually benefiting in and outside of this crisis. And it's that small group of people at the top of society that are asset rich. Um, and that's, they're the people who are going to come out of this um, healthier and wealthier. And it's the working poor that are going to get hammered. So it's kind of speeded up and crystallized what's already taken place. So um, unless there's dramatic changes to government and to the power balances in society, things are going to get a lot worse for working people. Yeah. Uh I suppose that it seems that the the trend that is most likely is that governments will continue to spend, um, continue to invest as long as capital needs them to, um, and then they'll stop. No longer than that, um, and we can see, John, that the the ground has already been prepared for for austerity. Um, you've you published a, a paper which we, as I said, we didn't get to discuss the last time around in the greenhouse or for the greenhouse think tank and you say in, in drawing up an economic stim, stimulus and recovery plan to restore, respond to this pandemic, pandemic sorry, states have an opportunity to ensure that this time around that they address the planetary emergency, social inequalities, precarious work and, and all of this sort of stuff. So this is an anti-austerity plan, it's an alternative to, to the direction we know we're, we're headed in. Um, could you briefly outline what the sort of key components of, of your alternative plan are for a type of recovery and reconstruction? Hi, and I'll start with, you know, what's really important now, particularly in our social media age, is to have a good tagline or a meme. And it's uh, build back better or no going back, I think, should be the way this is phrased. From my own point of view, it's about a just transition and a Green New Deal in terms of investing, using this opportunity. Now, just take a practical example with uh, less traffic on the roads. Well, now's the ideal time to uh, either fix roads and all the potholes that we, of which we have a lot in, in, in Ireland, North and South, or what we see other cities doing like Milan and Paris, they're literally laying down uh, hundreds of miles of new cycle lanes, walking, you know, improving and upgrading public transportation. So just even from the fact that we have less traffic on the roads is an opportunity, again, for a, a, you know, an active, innovative state or, or, or at the municipal city level to, you know, to do something different. So I think on transport, that definitely we need to see that. But as myself and Stevie were speaking before we went on air, you know, one of the downsides now with going back is with the social distancing protocols and, and people are going to be leery about using public transportation now as a result of the pandemic. So there's a downside you know, to that. I also think that uh, um, a plan that I was involved with uh, in, in the wake of the last global financial crisis here in, in the north of a Green New Deal based around retrofitting, ins uh, insulating houses in the public and, and in the private sector here in Northern Ireland is something that would be quite cheap and it would, it would have multiple uh, achievement and multiple benefits. I mean, we have the highest rates of, of energy poverty probably in Europe, in, in, in Northern Ireland. You know, depending on the price of oil, I mean, oh, that's gone through the floor now, but that's a very volatile uh, commodity. That because of our oil dependence in Northern Ireland on space heating, uh, because of our crappily insulated, uh, cheaply made house, house, but then high rates of rent and so on, that we have a lot of people who have their 
quality of life compromised by living in hard to heat homes. So by heating the street often rather than the, their own houses. And this also increases greenhouse gases because oil you know, is one of the worst and main forms of, of carbon emissions. But this idea of a Green New Deal of retrofitting houses would also provide jobs because we're going to need jobs uh, as we come out of this crisis, which is why I'm more and more convinced that, yes, while there's lots of talk about a universal basic income and we see evidence of, of some of this maybe happening with governments furloughing workers and paying them effectively, I absolutely think that, uh, yes, that's a, an innovative proposal, but actually a much more radical proposal is a job guarantee. Uh, and that's something that states could also be uh, engaged in. And for me, just to finish, another element that we have to see as part of this building back better is to re-regulate finance, to make finance work for the real economy. Because, of course, what happened 10 years ago, we bailed out the banks and, 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 and states did, you know, funnel money to finance, which never reached to, never mind working people, never reached the real economy. Whereas now we have to ensure that, you know, governments... In borrowing and you know I think ideas of modern monetary theory are, are quite significant here that states can uh, invest uh, and, and money is not the the object money after all from a Marxist point of view that you lads would well know it's a social relation money is a claim on resources rather than the way we normally think of money as a medium of exchange and, and so on but maybe that's uh, for discussion for a, for a separate podcast because it's quite a complex issue. But I do see that this is modern monetary theories moment. And of course, the issue why the UK can do this or why America can do it is that they are sovereign money systems, uh, unlike those like in Greece or Ireland who are part of the Eurozone. I'm glad you mentioned the job guarantee, John. I was going to pull you on that. <laughs> but uh, you, you mentioned the MMT and of course the, the question that is it's going to be raised. How we have the ideas, but how do you pay for it? Um, Stevie, you've been doing some work around MMT and, and these sorts of issues. Um, if we have a plan, how how do we pay for it in, in the UK? Well, I mean, we're already been we're already being softened up now by the mainstream press about how are we going to pay for this, who's going to pay the debts, and you can the the up for the inevitable um, kind of austerity programs that are going to emerge at the end of this. But um, it doesn't have to be that way. And MMT, modern monetary theory. People keep mistaking it for a, a, a policy or something or a left-wing idea. It's not. It's simply a new way or a different way or the correct way, some would argue, of looking at how money actually works where in a country where a, where a government has control over its own currency. Um, and even the Financial Times admitted it was four weeks ago that one of the headlines in the FT was, you know, we, we can fund anything we want to fund. We can keep making and printing and creating money. Now, there are inflationary issues there. And whenever you mention MMT, people immediately stop with fucking horror pictures of Zimbabwe and Weimar Republic in the 20s and 30s. But that's, that's kind of nonsense. Um, the government have a ways and means facility at the Bank of England. They can spend as much as they want. It's as simple as that. And it is as simple as that. There's no fucking smoke and mirrors to it. They did it in 2008. Um, they've done it. They did it back in the 30s. They did it after the Second World War. And when they left the gold standard. And the British state can invest as much as it wants in whatever it wants. So this myth that we have to borrow to spend is just that, it's a myth. It's a gift to, the, to capitalism. Basically the government saying, we want to borrow money off you even though we don't have to. And then we're, then we're gonna pay you this money back and we're gonna, you can charge us interest and we're gonna punish these fucking peasants by paying you back all this money. They don't have to do that at all. So what they're doing is they're choosing to borrow to put themselves in debt when they don't have to. And it's incredible, but the levels of economic illiteracy that are out there are also really shocking as well, you see. And, 
Um, and what we have to do, and part of the role of political education, people like us, is to, is, to, is to bust those neoliberal myths around how money works. There's plenty of ways we can finance a Green New Deal and a just transition. And that's really the tragedy of this entire situation, is that we are in the perfect position now to do something really radical. We just have the wrong fucking government. Mm. And of course, of course, that has huge implications for a region like the North, um, where the public finances are, are under strain and, and the executive has been told that there's nothing left in, in the coffers for, for them to invest in what, are, what, what you would say are admirable and sort of fairly radical plans in terms of a Green New Deal and, and meeting the demands of climate action. Yes, I mean, the reality is, as Stevie said, that um, what modern monetary theory, and it is a description, you know, people on the right, are, uh, you know, can be modern monetary theorists. It's simply a description of how states' finances actually work, but it's so counterintuitive to most people. And in a way, for me, the reason why people find it so hard to understand modern monetary theory, including academics, most of whom will reject it, is that they're suffering from what I would call handbag economics of Thatcherism. This idea that the, that the state is like a household and that you've got to, if you spend, you've got to have money coming in. That's not how state finances actually operate. And so there's partly a, a, an ideological or you know, a battle for ideas, uh, both in the academy and in public debate around you know, getting into people's heads that that's not how states operate. You know, there's even a wonderful quote, I don't know which American president it was, it might have been, you know, John Adams or somebody, that, who said, you know, a, a, a deficit, so long as it's not too great, will be a blessing to a nation uh, in many respects. And there's a really good article today in the, the Guardian from a guy called Simon Wren Lewis, a really smart political economist, who was basically echoing what Steve has just said there. He eviscerated the Treasury for saying they're now starting to beat the drums of austerity already when there's absolutely no need uh, for austerity to be the way in which we come out of this crisis. Stevie. Yeah, there was a, a Peston, who's a dickhead, but anyway, he was interviewing the head of the Bank of England yesterday, and the head of the Bank of England said, uh, he didn't come out and use modern monetary theory as a quote, but he says, we can help the government through this crisis. And what he meant was, we can provide the liquidity, we can create new money from nothing to make yeah. sure that the government doesn't run out of money in whatever it wants to invest in. They said that on TV last night, and Peston, of course, didn't really understand what he was saying to him. What he was referring to was the Ways and Means Facility, the Bank of England. The Bank of England discredits the accounts of the people the British government are buying services of. And so they just press a few buttons on a computer and credit someone a billion yeah. quid. And that billion quid's being created in the economy to spend on something like the Green New Deal, and it's debt-free money. It doesn't have to be paid back. It's money that just yeah. goes into the community. So there's this great uh, opportunity here, but the problem with it, they can't admit they're doing that, because they actually are doing this, by the way. They can't admit they're doing that, because then it, it kind of betrays the lie of the last 12 years of austerity, that there was no money, that they couldn't afford it, that we can't afford education, we can't afford health, we can't afford um, apprenticeship schemes, we can't afford that. And if they admit now that they can, well, then they, you know, they've, they've admitted that austerity was a lie, as we all know. So they're in a bit of a pickle there, because the more the Bank of England's under pressure, the more it does this, the more it provides that liquidity, the more we can point out, the, as John said, the reality of how the finances work, as opposed to the myths of how they work. Um, well, just to finish that point, it, from a Marxist point of view, it also brings us back to the importance of the productive assets of society. That's the real focus of the economy. You know, to get trapped in the deficit, the finance, is almost to play the game of the, the neoliberal system. Of course, we need a functioning financial system for any complex modern economy. 
but that should always be at the service of the real economy, you know, and that's part of the, the you know, the, the lessons from the last uh, bailout and so on, where it, it was funneled towards, you know, the finance sector explicitly. What Steve is saying is quite right that, it, it, you know, hidden uh, behind what's going on now is the rentier class, landlords and so on, gain from this. So for me, it's about returning to a real materialist and, you know, it's about the productive assets. I mean, the factories, the ideas, the, the workforce, that's still there that was there before the pandemic. So it is about how we get those back to, you know, back working again. So I, I think a really key message is, uh, you know, uh, yes, radical, green, but for ordinary working people, it's about jobs. It's, it's about services. You hit the nail on the head, John. It's also about ownership of those productive facilities. I mean, the very fact that 50% of land in England, I think I read, is owned by 1% of the population. There's an issue about who owns the productive assets of yeah. our society. Land's, of course, one of those productive assets, and so are, the, so are the facilities of production themselves. So economic democracy and greater democratic control over all of those things is crucial. So MMT I... and government spending can provide, yes, the liquidity of new investments for Green New Deal, but... We have to own those things. We have to make sure those things are productive. My train of thought goes is that again it's a you know, for a lot of us on, on, on the left, whether from a Marxist or a radical green perspective, we, we have neglected the analysis of finance on money for so long. But actually from a class position in terms of how power operates in society, money is a measure of class power. Money is a measure of how a particular class, particularly in the finance sector, can increase its bargaining power over the majority in society. So for me, it's almost like even for those of us on the progressive left, we have to re-educate ourselves in terms of understanding money is a social relation, it's about power, and, and, and not this fiction that many of us who studied economics and people in school, you know, this historical anthropological story of money, you know, as a way to overcome bartering and it's a medium of exchange, that is nonsense. Money is nothing except social power expressed through a social relationship backed by the state. If you want to, yeah, if you want to think about, remember when um, the previous Prime Minister May said there is no magic money tree, money tree. There is a magic money tree. The problem is we don't own it. Yeah. That's, what, that's yeah. what's at stake here. It needs to be democratised. Money, finance, production, that needs to be democratic. And yeah. for people listening, I check out the work of Anne Petty for uh, an excellent political economist on understanding, you know, the monetary system and how to re-regulate it and democratise it. Well, she's brilliant, Anne, but she had a go at me on Twitter the other day, so I'm not very pleased at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, one of, one of the things, you've touched on it, one of the things that MMT isn't necessarily great on is, is the, pr the production side of things and ownership and control of, uh, of the, the forces of production. Um, one of the ideas that has sort of started to gain traction um, prior to and during this crisis and it ties in with the owner, democratic ownership and control, ties in with the idea of a, a Green New Deal and the, the need for a, a just recovery from, from this crisis is community wealth building. Um, we've seen councils uh, adopt this model in Preston for example and North Ayrshire with the latest to adopt it under under Labour, I think they published their plan yesterday. We've been doing wee bits of work on on some of this stuff with the Democracy Collaborative and and others. Um, could you could you sort of outline how this fits in with with an alternative sort of uh, plan for for recovery? 
Well, to me, it's it's about relocalizing um, production and consumption, which enable when you relocalize it, it, it creates a greater possibility for you know either direct democratic ownership and control or, or indirect. And certainly, you know, Preston, you know, Cleveland in, in, in the States. And indeed, now, whether or not it's going to happen, I've seen our own local minister for the communities, uh, Deirdre Hardy, has also said that uh, community wealth building is going to be part of the recovery platform here for, for the executive. But for me, it, um, I, 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 think, I think a simpler definition or an older um, definition of community wealth building is municipal socialism. You know, and this crisis, if nothing else, has showed us that long supply chains and globalization you know are extremely uh, risky prospects when things go bad and that we have seen picking around food the importance of of, of selectively deglobalizing uh, our, our our food system increasing you know food security if not food sovereignty and so on and what i like about the community wealth building idea is that it's where the public sector becomes the anchor institution and, and, it, and it almost performs the same function that we're talking about in modern monetary theory is essentially in the municipal institutions, it could be an NHS trust, it could be the local council, a university, it, it, it in entering into productive trade relations with local suppliers and so on, creates jobs, keeps money flowing in the local economy. And I think that's the key issue, is to see that money is not money is a medium uh, to make things happen, which is basically, basically producing goods and services and, and, and so forth. And, and the, you know, to me, it seems to be that our public sector needs to be a lot more uh, imaginative and brave. You know, particularly Belfast City Council, I mean, a lot of our councils, and I know there's a, a big issue around they're financially strapped and so on, which to me completely overlooks the fact that they, they don't have to be viewed that way. They don't have to perform the functions that they've been you know, assigned to them. They can issue green bonds. And there is a, some discussion that, that this might happen here in, in the North, that we might get uh, green bonds, which is not modern monetary theory, but at least about the public sector providing the capital, the resources that are needed for all these things we're, we're talking about. So I, I think the idea of municipal socialism is definitely back uh, on the cards. Yes, we call it now community wealth building. But it's an old idea, and you can see across these islands, particularly in cities like Birmingham or Manchester, you know, we still are using infrastructure, uh, picking sewerage and roads in these cities that were formed by essentially municipal socialism back in the 19th and 20th century. Stevie, we're doing some work on, on this stuff um, in the north, um, and we've seen some progress towards uh, the introduction of community wealth building principles and ideas. Can you tell us a bit more about um, how it could be applied in the north and across the local authorities and some of the stuff that's been happening in the background? Well, we've been in discussion with um, Development Trust NI and with, and with actually the Minister of Communities and others and with Claire's the Centre for Local and Economic Strategies who are doing all that great work and that great research and helping out Preston and Ayrshire. Um, and, it, and there's two sides to that story. One is it's a really good story. The other, the other side of the story is quite a sad story because the sad story is the reason why we're looking at municipal socialism or radical municipalism is because we've lost state power. We've got nowhere else to go almost, so we're, we're kind of refocusing on a local regional level because we can't take control of the state, and that's another maybe conversation we can have in a minute. Um, but there's huge benefits to that nonetheless, about building socialism and building a new society from the bottom up and using anchor institutions like universities, like public sector organisations, 
and bending their procurement towards progressive kind of direction. So when they procure, and they spend billions, these organizations, but when they procure, to make sure they procure from local social enterprises, local SMEs, but also our favorite local cooperative um, organizations. Um, and Colks in particular, the vibrant cooperative sector for me are kind of crucial to the change in the way economies work on a local level. I mean, as you know, John and Sean, across Europe, there's tens of thousands of these things rooted in local communities. We have a handful struggling to survive, and we know that we're one of them and we help others. But in terms of their resilience, their, their, their democracy, they, their economic democracy, uh, they're rooted in local communities. So they offer all sorts of benefits, I think, to local communities. And, um, and if you extend those calls out to community land trusts and cooperative housing, all of those things change the nature of ownership. And so rather than just state ownership as the goal of any kind of red, green or a socialist or, or an environmental stuff, no, we have to look at local ownership too. And for me, land and resources and productive resources at that local level is really crucial too. And so you can build, as John said, radical socialist and green projects from the ground up and you can use public money to do that. Um, and and, even, and there's, huge, there's huge opportunities right now to do that, particularly coming out of this crisis. And I'll just add, add to that and linking back to the discussion on finance, there is also quite radical potentials of local currencies as you know sitting alongside national currencies because part of the problem with, when you have like the, the British pound is that it can be anywhere in, in the UK or the euro of course can flow across many different countries. A local currency essentially acts as a way of keeping the uh, multiplier effect as it's called uh, in terms of you buy money off the butcher, the butcher pays the baker, it stays all in the local, you can't use a, you know, a Belfast bobbin, whatever the currency is, and, and spend it in, in Newcastle. It's not a complete solution, but it is about opening up you know, a new horizon of possibility that actually we as communities, we can create our own currencies. Because as long as there's trust in, 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 in those currencies and so on, we don't have to depend upon the current uh, you know, infrastructure of, of, of finance. And I do think, although we've only had very patchy, small-scale experiments with local currencies, I do think that could be part of a community, community, radical municipal or community wealth-building project. There's also huge benefits and huge potential though in the local credit union movement here and in mutual credit networks. And there's all sorts of ways and means to finance local projects that can create small amounts of wealth that can that can employ people and that wealth and those skills stay in the local um, economy rather than get extracted out in this kind of yeah. um, rentier capitalist system but that crucially also means and back to the two points about land ownership and all the rest of it the other thing that you mentioned john before that i didn't want to lose was um single farm payments up this week i think it's actually friday it might tomorrow might be the deadline for farmers to get their their claims in and i live in a rural county down and the, the hillside's been burning all around me for the last month because they as they bring as they bring land into agricultural readiness so they can increase their single farm payments there's a huge debate to be had about what we can do now now they well i don't know if the north will stay out of cap it probably will eventually but what we can pay for if we're going to pay and subsidize farming and i've none i've no objection to that as a socialist but let's pay them to do something more constructive than just burning fucking fields yeah. and burning doors and forests yeah yeah i know nigel mckinney a neighbor of yours has been quite active on, on twitter showing pictures of you know this ridiculous incentivized European Union, incentivized acts of environmental vandalism. We should be paying farmers to sequester carbon, uh, to grow trees, you know, to enhance biodiversity, you know, and farmers will do that. I mean, like, often I'm really critical of, of some of my fellow Greens who are kind of anti-farmers and so on. Farmers are just reacting to the, uh, the existing imp in incentives around them. They're not stupid, they, they realize things aren't right with the environment and so on. So I think we should be paying farmers to, to essentially sequester carbon 
to, to re-wet re bogs and so on, which we, we're, we're going to need that. And just to, it's probably a separate you know, podcast you could do. Our big challenge on this island in terms of a green transformation is going to be a just transition for rural communities. Mm -hmm. uh, because if they're so locked into and they've been incentivized into a carbon-based, extractive, globalized agricultural system, that they're going to have to be brought into a conversation about what does a green and just and sustainable and resilient uh, relocalized food system uh, look like. And that will require, I think, a lot of work with communities as opposed to, you know, imposing solutions on them. Yeah. yeah. One of your yeah. colleagues, John, Sean McCabe, and Task has, has done a lot of good work on this and yeah. into speaking to farmers and he's shown, as you said, that small, the bulk of small farmers are up for this conversation, um, but they're not getting the state support and direction that, that they need uh, to engage. There's a big division in our farming communities. I mean, I, just a, something that we may touch upon, you know, in terms of my own political party, anything that the government talks with two right-wing parties, is that last week, the Irish Farmers Association, which of course represents the big farmers, uh, they took the unprecedented step in emailing all their members and having a go at the Green Party, which is, apparently is unprecedented. They usually don't take positions on parties because they're shit scared that the Greens are going to come down with a whole rake of policies that, that they don't mm -hmm. like and so on, you know. Um, and, but that's part and parcel of, you know, bourgeois politics. Yeah, yeah there's, a big difference. there's a big difference between a 30-acre farmer and uh, some of the industrial levels of farmer we're seeing yeah. emerging in Ireland, and it suits them. I mean, what are we four, five hundred percent efficient in beef? It's beef for export to Chinese markets, and um, it's very good. It brings in money. It's part of global networks, but it's absolutely guaranteeing the fucking future destruction of the planet. So yeah. we, you know, we need to move away from those. But as you said, small farmers aren't aren't resistant to new ideas and new ways of, of looking after and caring for the land, particularly if we're subsidising them to do it. It's big farmers and big industrial companies yeah. that want that to happen because it affects. And of course, it. It's the, the big farmers here are benefiting primarily from CAP, um, from those subsidies uh, in terms of... As they were from the RHI payments as well. You know, these weren't going to small farmers. These are going to very large, uh, and as we now know, DUP-connected farmers in North Antrim. Uh, yeah. So this was left to my university address. Uh, we're we're going to get on to the, the government formation talks, you'll be glad to know, <laughs> John, in a second. Um, but before that, I just want to backtrack a wee bit and pull together a couple of things you were talking about. Stevie, you were talking about the, the loss of state power and, and so on. And uh, we were talking about CAP and obviously those two those two things are inextricably bound up with, with the, the EU. Um, one of the things that's been happening in the background, of course, is the EU screen day which was originally the Green New Deal, but they dropped the new part of it for, for uh, some reason. Um, Stevie, does the, does the EU's Green Deal offer, I'm going to start with you because I know you've got a lot to say about EU. Um, <laughs> I'm going to reduce it to one sentence. I'll paraphrase a very good friend of mine. Nothing good can come from the EU. That's all I'm going to say <laughs> on the matter. No, but it's a, the, but, the, the does EU... the EU's Green Deal offer any hope whatsoever or... No, I honestly don't think it does. It's, I think it's a colossal exercise in greenwashing. That's what I honestly think it is. Um, if you think back and compare, I think the 2008 global financial crash in Europe, the bailout cost about 4.2 trillion. Most of that in euros, most of that was quantitative easing money. They've committed 1 trillion to the Green New Deal over mm. 10 years to reduce emissions or to get to their targets. 
But in terms of that, what that one trillion is, most of it's not actually new money at all. In fact, most of it's just rejigging money that already existed in certain kinds of funds. And, and most of it actually is some vague promise that in the future we're going to get the private sector to come in and fund some of this stuff for us. That's kind of what that one trillion is. It doesn't actually exist. They reckon about 7.5 billion of new money has been put into the Green New Deal to try and help your immediate targets. Meanwhile, 29 million euros, billion, sorry, fuck me, 29 billion has been given over to some massive gas, fossil fuel gas project in Europe. Another 33 million in subsidies to um, arms production facilities across Europe. That's the nature of the EU. The thing about the EU is it's a bit like that, and that story of the frog and the, the, the scorpion. In that old story about the frog going across the river and the, the frog says, you won't sting me. And the scorpion says, no, of course I won't sting you because if I sting you, you will both drown. The EU is the scorpion. It's in its nature to do this kind of thing. It can't help itself. It's written into its treaties, its projects. So whilst on the face of it, it looks good, the Green New Deal, in reality, it's, it's just bollocks. And as I said, it's a massive, it's a massive greenwashing um, project on the face of it. So it's basically a massive public-private partnership over the next That's it, yeah. Years. And, we, and we, we saw how well they're working out. Yeah, it seems to me that uh, uh, any public money that's going to be committed to it is, is going to be used to take the risk out of private sector activities. Um, so as you say, a massive PPP project. One of the things I noticed happening in the background as well is BlackRock, one of the world's biggest vulture funds and investors in fossil fuel activities, has been drafted in to advise the EU on green banking rules. Like, you fucking make it up, could you? John? <laughs> I have to say that the, the longer uh, things go on, the less enamoured I am to the EU, I have to say. You, you both remember my uh, confessional in, in Lusty Beg. <laughs> yeah, we do. Uh, right. Probably go down in, in, in the annals of, of public flagellation, not once, but I did, I did the same talk twice. So I'm, I, I'm becoming even more sceptical towards the EU. I mean, we didn't even get into you know, had the EU's fiscal rules, the growth and stability pact, you know, at least for all its ills, the UK in having its own sovereign money is able to do the modern monetary theory, you know, they're not calling it that. That's impossible for, uh, you know, most other uh, countries in the, in, in, in the EU. And certainly for me, the, uh, the European Green Deal, whenever you woman Ursula van der Leyen come out with it, you'll see that this is a grudging um, attempt to, to be seen to be doing the right thing. And actually, pre-pandemic EU policies, particularly around the just transition, there was a, a pot of money set aside that helped, for example, the Spanish coal mining uh, transition. Uh, and that's where you can see, well, there's some evidence of some good coming out of that. But that took a, a left-wing government in Spain uh, extracting that money from the EU to help you know, uh, workers to retire 55, retrain, and so on. So no, it, you know, the reality is the European Union, as Tony Benn, I think, said, is the only political institution in the world that has capitalism written into its constitution. And that is a major challenge to people like me who, I don't know whether if we had the, re the Brexit referendum, uh, you know, tomorrow, how I'd vote, I don't think I'd probably vote the way I did before. I'd just become uh, more and more convinced that unless, and I think I said this in my uh, confessional and lusty beg. The only way the EU can really radically change is if Germany, because the Germans are the ones, I think partly historically they have memories of inflation. They are the most right wing economically and fiscal policy that unless you see a radical change in the German government, obviously they need France to go that way as well. We're not going to see uh, anything 
or contradictory moves. So there's a contradictory move. You've got one element of the EU that was funding a just transition or could be used for that. It's also, you know, part of the German Coal Commission that, uh, of what's going on there in terms of the transition of coal mining communities in Germany. But the Green Deal, just to finish, to me, the Green Deal is only a step in the direction of where we need to go towards post-growth. You know, there's a nonsense about the circular economy, green growth, and so on that I'm deeply skeptical about. But that's the entire raison d'etre of the Green Deal. It's the continuation of business as usual. It's a desire to return to normal. Why in the name of Jays is they want to go back to normal? Normal was the problem. <laughs> yeah, there was one that was fascinating over the last couple of days to watch what's happening in the EU. Apart from their terrible response to the crisis, um, their response to Italy in terms of refusing really to assist Italy in any, in any genuine way, there was a whole debate about Corona bonds, about spreading the debt across Europe. You're going to have some big yeah. response. They said no to that. And now yeah. the German high courts come out against even quantitative yeah. easing measures. So there's a split yeah. now between European capital as such, and national capitalism. And part of the EU project was to prevent those tensions yeah. with capitalism emerging. But, but they're inevitably going to emerge because the capitalism is in crisis. And so Aye. COVID has probably sped up what was already a crisis emerging within capitalism and also within the confines of the European Union. Um, and as you said, Germany, kind of the, the driving force behind federal Europe, is now the one that seems to be pulling away from that project. So. Um, you could Aye. see a, you could see a stick you could see the EU on a sticky wicket in the next few years. I mean, and it's people, have, people, have left, people have left the gold standard in the past because of similar reasons. Why wouldn't they leave the eurozone? And also, just just, uh, just on Germany, and that's something that people don't realise. Alternative for Deutschland, this kind of neo-fascist party that's actually now the I think the third largest in the Bundestag. This began as the nickname was the Party of Economists. It began as a kind of a hawkish fiscal, uh, you know, um, movement of academics who are critical of the profligacy of, of, of Southern Europe and so on. That actually at, at the heart of that, now it's of course morphed into a classic xenophobic racist and so on, but it actually begins its life as, as these fiscal hawks uh, based in the academy that then, that then spread out. And I think there's something really rotten in the German policy around that uh, fiscal conservatism, which I have to say even infects elements of the Green Party in Germany who are obviously quite quite strong. Yeah, that's funny that, that, that relationship you just pointed out between these fiscal hawks, these radical neoliberals and fascism, because you see exactly the same thing emerging in, in Brazil under Bolsonaro. The first thing Bolsonaro did when he set up his cabinet was to recruit all of these people from the Von Mises Institute in, in mm. the Brazilian places. So he packed his cabinet full of radical right-wingers and we can see it in Boris Johnson's cabinet as well. It's packed with radical kind of Friedmanites and Hayekians and all of these fucking lunatic neoliberal types to the point where they don't know how to respond to a crisis which needs a state to intervene. And so you, that populist right-wing drift is a kind of a, an alliance nearly of, of xenophobic and fascist forces with you know, uber capitalists. And it's a real worrying concern. We called the last podcast the good, the bad and the ugly. The bad's austerity, but the ugly is Bolsonaro Mm. The ugly is Hungary, the ugly is the AFD, the ugly is what Boris Johnson's party could turn into. But yeah. if, we, if we're going to see a, a shift in the direction of a Green New Deal and a, a just transition, um, it's going to have to happen at a state level, first of all, isn't it? If, if we're going to rely on supranational, undemocratic institutions like EU or the World Bank or IMF or UN... Or actually, back to Stevie's point, I mean, the, the reality, and I don't know whether you agree with it, is that 
you know, the moment we're in now, the only possible avenues for progressive action is at the local level, city level, council level. I, I, I'm not talking about abandoning, you know, national politics and so on, but I think given the crisis and the, the, the dynamics and how things are changing so quickly, that actually there is never more, um, you know, an importance of, of that relocalization of political activism. Uh, and particularly to see, you know, trade unions, you know, becoming more, you know, trades councils and so on coming together. Because I think, you know, and I'm just being realistic as somebody who's come from the trenches of bourgeois politics for seven years, is that the system is broke. Bourgeois politics and the way it's organized, you know, it's not broken. It was made that way. But at least at the local level, there's a greater opportunity uh, for action and for tangible action for, uh, for people and, and communities to see that their lives can be made better by, you know, municipal uh, and public sector agencies. You know, there was a moment now in the, in the pandemic, of course, where we are, you know, properly regarding the NHS. Thank Christ we still have it because, you know, imagine we were stuck in America and what's happening there. And to say, well, it's not just the NHS, it's education. Let's decommodify that. That's part of the reason why we're responding. The NHS is responding, you know, as well as it can, given the constraints of the government that's in there. It's the decommodified uh, healthcare systems around Europe, the ones that are responding best. But let's use that new, newly found, we're all going to clap tonight at eight o'clock. Well, that's brilliant. But, you know, what, what these workers need are proper pay, conditions, uh, and, and so on. But they're only one part of the graded welfare state that I think we could use that as the basis to rebuild back the welfare state. I mean, that's what part of building back better should be. It's about recreating, you know, things we thought we had won after the Second World War, we're going to have to refight them again. And I think there's an opportunity there, particularly in terms of people's consciousness around the value of the NHS. I think there's a really, I think there's a really important point you made there, John, about um, uh, this idea of relocalizing our struggles. Because uh, I remember the Green Movement back in the 70s and 80s when it first kind of emerged onto the political scene. It was all about the local. And I remember the first slogan was act locally, think globally. It's about getting involved in local communities, getting involved in local trade unions, getting involved in workplace struggles. And it drifted away from that. And not just the green movement, socialism and social democracy drifted away from that understanding that the struggle you engage in is where you are, where you plant your feet, where you stand. That's your struggle. And we drifted away from that. And we ended up in this idea of pooling sovereignty and giving over power to supranational institutions, whether it's EU, IMF, or whatever it would be. And I remember thinking all that time, how's that going to fucking work? And then yesterday, we have another one of these initiatives. Uh, what do they call themselves? Progressive International. Another like, group of really nice, famous left-wing social critics, talking heads, creating this supranational body for a supranational conversation. Meanwhile, the only way you can genuinely win power is where you are with the people around you. And there's a real disconnect there, I think. I'm not saying this is... I know it should be connected. It should be at global, yeah, yeah. globally. But there's a real disconnect there between... What, how people think we can achieve change. And I know the only way to achieve change is by building power locally. And that's what that radical municipalism is about, community wealth building and, and being in your union and being active in your union and being active in your community. It recognises that power emerges from people being the agents of change, not institutions. Um, uh, and, there's a, and I don't think, and I think that we have to kind of reconnect that idea of there's, there is an internationalism, but that's not our internationalism. You know, those big uh, institutions. So I think the idea of really focusing locally is something we all need to have a real good look at. And actually, just to maybe link to Green Party talks with uh, mm. yeah, the, the, the two right-wing parties down south, 
there's a very lively debate, as you can imagine, within the Green Party. And one of the arguments, I mean, I'm implacably opposed to any deal with uh, Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael. There's a chance now for the Greens, I think, yeah, they should extract maximum a deal. You know, we, we should be demanding the Department of Finance, uh, not just being, you know, T-shocked for a year and so on. Really press home a, a really tough deal and then walk away from it or force the other two parties to collapse the deal. So I, I can't see any benefit for society, the, the environment and so on of, of a deal. And I can't speak, of course, for other members of the party, but certainly uh, the, the party here in the north is much more to the left than many of its members down, down south. But one of the strongest arguments, and there's many, about not going into government is to rebuild uh, links with our communities in opposition. And actually to see that the Greens know more than uh, the left, we've lost our way. We, we, you know, we pride ourselves on one of our four principles is grassroots democracy. But that largely translates into ordinary members having a say. And that's the thing. That, uh, you know, unlike other parties, two thirds of the party on this island will have to vote for any deal. And I can't see that happening. But actually what Greens need to do is to get stuck into our communities, organize people around food, local energy cooperatives and so on. And there is an appetite now uh, amongst party members who can see, yes, we've got 12 TDs, 10 of them are, you know, very, very new. Some of them weren't even involved in politics until, you know, a year or so ago. And I think we're not strong enough to enter into the, the, the white heat of a coalition government. It's going to be the worst coalition, you know, condition. There's going to be austerity that the other two parties will need. So I do think it's an opportunity, certainly for the Greens, to you know, live up to our principles of grassroots democracy by getting involved in these initiatives at the, at the local level. Um, and so there, as you can imagine, there is a lively debate in the party, but I can't see the party membership voting for any deal. It seems to me that the Fianna Fáil and Kiel have already committed in their joint agreement to returning to uh, abiding the EU's fiscal rules at the nearest opportunity. Um, and we know what the implications of that are. The implications of that are not public investment, not deficit spending, but austerity over the next uh, five years. So that's, that's sort of what the Greens would be entering into, even if they were able to extract some uh, concessions in principle. Uh, uh, I mean, just to try to cut across this, I know we're short yeah. of time, is that what's on the table for the Greens now is an unjust transition. I, I have no doubt that the other two parties say, okay, it's one seven percent reduction in greenhouse gases and a whole other rate of environmental good things. But it will come at the cost of things like a high carbon tax that's going to be on the backs of ordinary people. And I can see that if the Greens get the government now, we'll have a gilet jaune, uh, uh, you know, mobilisation uh, against it. Young people will feel betrayed. The youth strike for climate and so on. If we don't actually. You know, live by another slogan that many of us, are, you know, say in marches. If we believe we want system change, not climate change, well, now's the opportunity. You know, the, the, the Greens could be part of the, you know, collapsing completely of civil war politics, of confining these two parties, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael. Not the history, there'll always be a constituency there for them. But my, my own sense is that this will not pass. I could be completely wrong. Uh, the membership won't, won't stand for going to the coalition again. Uh, and, and by my reckoning, there seems to be the makings of, of the type of left block or left movement that, that you've described, John, like a red-green sort of movement, red-green alliances, 
uh, that's, that's forged not just in the political parliamentary sphere, but also through extra parliamentary struggles, through the connection between community movement, community campaigns, uh, trade union organising, and, and so on. Is that how you see it, Stevie? Well, we've seen it already. I know that John's done excellent work with our own union, with Unite, up here in the north, yeah. in terms of opening up that dialogue between you know, the green movement and, and heavy industry, if you like, and unionised heavy industry. And that is a crucial debate. If we're going to have a transition, we're talking about particular sectors of the economy, that are heavily carbon-heavy, so um, and so those are the debates, and those are the, not, not just debates, alliances and allegiances we need to build between the Greens and the Reds, if you like, because that is the only future we have. That's the only political alliance that's going to work in the future. For the Greens uh-huh. to go into government with Fina Gelson and Fall, as John said, would be a fucking huge epoch-level blunder. I really think yeah. that. I mean, staying oh, out, that's... building some sort of left-green coalition, as well as a left-green bloc, it's happening everywhere else in Europe and South America. The, the, yeah. the red and the green is coming together everywhere because everyone recognises it, and it's not happening here. It's probably the only country in fucking I can think of where there's no real genuine alliance between yeah. those two between those two uh, blocks. And, uh, and, and, and part part of that, Stevie, is that you, you mentioned one of the positive green slogans of "Act Local, Think Global." But there's another one that I think also is, is a much less positive, which is often Greens say, "Or oh, neither left nor right, but in front." And I think that has always irritated people like me on the green left, that the party now has an opportunity to absolutely place itself with the progressive forces, as opposed to continuing with this often scientific or moralized, you know, neither left nor right, but in front, you know, here. Watch out for talk of the urgency of the climate crisis, that Greens have to go into government and so on. And I'm hoping that the membership, and my sense is from taking soundings, is that many members of of the membership, certainly in Northern Ireland, are not going to be, you know, swayed by this discourse of, of urgency. Let's basically bring down the political system mm-hmm. as it exists down, down south, and from that, then build up something better. That's another element to build back better. Without without that sort of mudguard, the the Finnafall partnership can't last. You know, if we're looking that it's bound to bound to collapse. So let them on it, Stevie. Now I'm, I'm just I'm fascinated by that um, argument and that idea, and I've heard it so much over the last five or six years about I'm not left or I'm not right. I'm just about what's right and wrong and all that bullshit. And, you know, you can't deny ideology. You can't deny that people hold values that they put into policy and they want to change the world they live in. The idea that you can do something that's not ideological is fucking hilarious. It's like saying it's like denying gravity. Oh, I don't like gravity. I don't like the concept of it. I don't like the word. I'm just going to ignore it. And to those people, I would say, I'll tell you what, you go up to the third floor of a building and jump out the fucking window. You know what's going to happen? Gravity is going to grab you and it's going to fucking slam you into the concrete. <laughs> and that's the reality of, of capitalist and neoliberal ideology. It will grab you and it will destroy you and your children's future. And the Greens get into government with two parties that belong to that system. Well, I'm not even worried about the Green Party. I'm, I, don't, I don't shit about the Green Party. I'm worried about the future for all of us. And I think it's Sean that we should let them two parties have two or three years knocking lumps over each other and build a, build something on the left that can take power in the future on the parliamentary level, whilst not forgetting that we, we can also build power in every other place that where we live, where in our communities and in our workplace um, and, so, and places like that. So that's what I'd like yeah. to see happening, but um, we'll have to wait and see, I suppose. But in effect, that. Mm. Yeah, spend the next couple of months or next coming period kicking the absolute shit out of those two. Um, Is that what physically, or you're talking? Are you talking? <laughs> well, I'm from a non-violent party, lads. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've got a bad back, Sean. You young ones have to do all that. I'm, I'm not out for that. I, you know, I wouldn't last two seconds in the trenches. 
<laughs> yeah, Stevie's in the victory parade. That's it, yeah. That's done, carrying the banner. <laughs> well, lads, I think, uh, I think well, uh, unless you have any final, final comments, John, um, I think we'll like, uh, finish on that point of agreement. I never thought we would, we would finish there, but, uh, but we have. Yeah, um, fuck consensus. What happened there? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a very useful and productive conversation. I've enjoyed it. Um, but we'll we'll leave it there until next time. Thanks very much, John. And thanks. All right. Thanks, lads. Take care. Adios.